0: came out of here with a contract. I needed the dough. And I'm going to collect every nasty
1: little cent of it. Maybe more.
0: Now look, baby, I'm not trying to rush you.
1: Silly boy. I was crazy about Ida. Ida Lupino was something.
0: She liked to shake things up. If this is a sample of your work, you're
1: not very good at pickups. Anything you asked her to do or wanted her to do, she could do it. Serious, comedic, lightweight, heavy. Picture! What do I care about your picture? I hate you, do you
0: understand? I hate you! Irfan, very irritating. She could write, She she knew she could direct. She had all the capacity to be a producer. She had an amazing mind. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode and another month of a podcast directed by... So this month, uh, we're taking a look at a director, maybe lesser known to some of our audience, Ida Lupino. And to do that, I have teacher, scholar, author, Julie Grossman. So thank you for being on the show this month.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So... You know, every month we have a quote unquote expert, but I think this is maybe the first time on the show we can take out the quote unquote. Uh, we have an expert on Ida Lupino, so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Maybe what you do. You know what you know what your connection to this uh, director is, and maybe how people can contact you online if they're interested.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, so I uh, write books about literature and film. And, um, one of my areas of expertise is film noir. So that's actually how I came to Ida Lupino, um, because I had written, uh, about gender and film noir for some years. And, you know, a lot of my work was really trying to challenge the idea that film noir was a quote unquote male sphere. Um, you know, we know that the sort of conventional way of Reading film noirs to focus on the hard-boiled detective and, um, the femme fatale as this kind of, um, object of the, of the gaze and this threat to, uh, the male protagonist. So I was intrigued to find out that, um, a classic noir movie, in fact, the only movie, classic noir movie directed by a woman was directed by, um, uh, Ida Lupino. So my, the first Ida Lupino movie I watched was The Hitchhiker from 1953. And that was my introduction to Lupino. And from there, I was just fascinated to think about, um, the idea that she was literally the only woman making films in the post-war period. Um, so that in itself is an invitation to, um, you know, uh, to, um, explore. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, so so that's how I discovered Ida Lupino. And then I uh, made contact with my colleague um, in Chicago, Therese Grisham, and she and I decided that we had a mutual passion for Ida Lupino and we wanted to write a book about her. So that's the story.
0: That's great. Yeah. It was interesting when I was, you know, uh, I will give my co-host my credit. He's the one who who suggested uh, this director and actually for uh, I think it was for Christmas, actually, sent me, there's like a little, there's a box set of Ida Lupino movies. And um so it was a great opportunity. I think on this show, it's so interesting because usually we take these very, very well-known directors. So it's like, okay, who hasn't seen a Scorsese movie? There's not very many times you're being introduced to kind of a brand new director. And especially like doing just, you know, the barest amount of research as we do on the show, like, you know, looking on Wikipedia about, you know, her history. And it's just it's just incredible. Like, you know, to be a director as a woman during this period of time, like it's still, let's be real. It is still hard to be a female, female director right now. Like you may, we, you know, we covered um, Karen Kusama on this show and it's like, you make one quote unquote mistake uh, in a movie bombs. And then it's like, you, you have to work for 10 years to get another, another shot. Um, Whereas men can like make a lot of mistakes and be rewarded. Um, So, but you know, back in back in this time in in io lapino's time like it's incredible to see that she was i mean it's interesting because she had a pretty successful career as an actress too um and then kind of slid into directing and became pretty successful there so i mean she maybe wasn't like blowing up the box office necessarily but was a successful working director so you know what do you know about kind of how that progression work like her as an actress and then moving into direction and why do you think she was able to be so successful during a truly male-dominated time in in the art form
1: yeah yeah that's a great question um so um she was as you say a successful um performer um and interestingly you know best known for her noir roles you know, in movies like Roadhouse and On Dangerous Ground and um, High Sierra, which is a great sort of Western noir film with Humphrey Bogart. Um, And so, you know, she had a reputation as an actor for being like, um, you know, a sort of tough dame, um, which made her um, an an appropriate performer for film noir movies. Um, But she really was... um, a tough, resilient, courageous person um, as an individual and had grown up very early. Um, Her father was a a well-known actor in England. And, um, you know, she came to the U.S. on a contract with Paramount um, in the 1930s. And, you know, she was a young teenager um, and um, really, um, as I say, kind of um, grew up quickly. But really um kind of made an impression as um a very passionate charismatic performer um so you know by the time it's you know she got to um the middle 1940s and the late 40s she really wanted a new challenge um i mean she did so many different things she was a composer she um loved to write um you know so um you know, she was a producer and a director and an actor. um, So she was always looking for new professional challenges. You know, and there's one quote that always stays with me, um, where she said, you know, you can't act your life away. And I think what she was sort of bristling at a certain point, um, you know, at the, the kind of craziness of Hollywood and, you know, the superficiality of Hollywood. And so if, you know, for a creative woman, um, she really, you know, wanted to to do different things and wanted to take advantage of different kinds of creative artistic opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, um, as many know, um, in the late '40s, there were all kinds of opportunities for independent uh, filmmaking. You know, after the Paramount Decree, mm-hmm. and the studios had to divest of their um, sort of monopolistic control of the the industry. And so like others, um, she found collaborators and decided to start um, her own film company. Um, And she had very particular ideas about what she wanted to do. She wanted to make um, social, what we now call, You know, in film criticism, social problem films, um, but more largely films that were focused on social justice issues. Mm -hmm. Um, she, she wanted to address, well, the kinds of stories that you see in her, in her films. Um, you know, and so that obviously made her, um, a, a unique, uh, figure in the post-war Hollywood period. Um, but also, um, you know, for me, um she well let me back up a little bit. Um so one thing um that I think is interesting about her acting career is that she um would sometimes refuse roles um as as some other you know powerful um female actors from the um classic period did. And when she was on suspension for refusing roles, she would go around um the studio and look at what other directors were doing. So she kind of, you know, had this sort of um, stealth way of learning the craft of directing, um, making use of the time on suspension to sort of, you know, see um, and learn the the craft of of directing. Um, and so sh- she, you know, interestingly, um, got into directing um, initially um, because of uh, a um, something that uh, because of happenstance, the director Elmer Clif- Clifton who was scheduled to direct uh, not wanted had a heart attack um soon um into the production of the film and so she then stepped in um to direct so um which I think is also really interesting and then having um done such a a great job um she continued on um so she and, um, her husband at the time, Collier Young, and, um, uh, two colleagues, um, first, um, Anson Bond and then, um, Malvin Wald, who was a, a, a scriptwriter, um, decided to start this company called The Filmmakers, um, with one M. Everybody thinks it's a typo, hmm. <laughs> but it's <laughs> filmmakers with one M. Um, and, um, they were really interested Interested in telling stories that Hollywood wouldn't tell stories about um, sort of anonymous, isolated, marginalized figures in um, a, a setting um, where the American dream had kind of failed these characters. Um, and, you know, also she and her colleagues were interested in location shooting and in a kind of realism that she associated with Italian neorealists like Rossellini. Um, so, for example, um, um, if I can go here, if you don't mind, um there's this great scene in Outrage um, where, toward the beginning, she is with her boyfriend, uh, Anne is with her boyfriend Jim in the park, and there's this older woman who's watching mm-hmm. them um, as they're about to kiss, and the woman just has this great sort of face, and it's just the kind of thing in a park setting that, you know, if you were trying to be, you know, realist, I mean, it doesn't have any kind of, you know, significant narrative purpose to have the camera and Jim notice this older woman looking at them. Um, but it gives you this sense of a kind of, um, uh, of of realism. Um, and, you know, there are all kinds of examples of that um, th- that we can talk about, you know, throughout her uh, body of work. Um, so the the interest in um, sort of marginalized figures in a post-war uh, landscape, um, interest in location shooting and a kind of realism, interest in giving unknown actors a chance. And so, you know, actors like Sally Forrest and Keith Prezel and um, uh, Mala Powers um, got their break from Lupino um and um you know that actually is how she ended up getting the the nickname of mother which mm. stayed with her throughout her film and television directing career um because she, you know she was working with these young actors who um you know uh for whom she had this kind of maternal uh sort of role so um yeah so that that's kind of you know how she got interested in and into um filmmaking um, but, you know, imagine there's a, um, um, uh, a comment, um, that I, uh, I think it's Janine Basinger, um, comments that, you know, when she was, uh, the only woman in the Directors Guild in the early 1950s, you know, the meetings would begin, you know, gentlemen and madam, right? <laughs> and imagine one. <laughs> the one. Imagine what that would what that experience must have been like. And so this is why, you know, my co-author Therese Grisham and I kept coming back to how incredibly courageous Lupino was to take on these projects and to sort of tramp around, say, the Southwest when she was making The Hitchhiker. She had just had her her daughter and she's tramping around, you know, with this all-male production crew um across, you know, southwest of america and, and she just was really kind of um you know very brave yeah. so and talented
0: so i do want to get back to the social problems aspect because i think to me that was i mean even without doing any research it's impossible not to notice what's going on there especially given the time these were made in but one thing i did want to talk about just in case um our listeners don't know because i think film noir is one of those um one of those definitional terms that people are like, yeah, I think I know what that is, um, but then you ask them like, okay, but what is it? And they go, well, I don't know. It's like there's a there's an evil woman and there's a detective. It's dark, I guess. So I feel like people maybe don't truly know what film noir is. So I wonder if you could like put that in a box for us and explain like in a few words what you think film noir is and maybe how Lupino's movies either fit or kind of push against the constraints of those boxes?
1: Yeah. um, So film noir generally refers to um, movies from, say, the early 1940s, often um, Maltese Falcon, 1941, Mm. is thought to be the first um, film noir movie. Though, again, you know, any category, you put a little pressure on it, and it's it's going to to, um, (laughs) dissipate. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, you know, the, uh, original cycle film noirs maybe went until the late 1950s, um, marked perhaps, um, the conclusion marked by, uh, Touch of Evil, Orson Welles' Touch of Evil in 1958. Um, and then of course, you know, in the 1970s, we have neo-noir with Chinatown and Taxi Driver and the 80s Body Heat and, um, but, um, the general sort of, um, consensus i guess about film noir um is that it um it refers to uh both visual patterns and character patterns um the character patterns we've already mentioned the hard-boiled detective um which sort of is adapted from the 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 hard-boiled, um, uh, crime fiction of, um, authors like Dashiell Hammett and James Cain and Raymond Chandler. Um, and, um, the, the character, the figure of the femme fatale. Of course, that, there's a long lineage there from Eve to Lilith, you know, the deadly <laughs> right. seductress. Who lures the male protagonist into her deadly web and then causes his death and has to be killed off at the end in classic noir because of production codes. Um, so, um, um, but then you know the visual style of these films uh, strongly influenced by German expressionism. You know, like canted angles and chiaroscuro, like the the sort of use of light and shadow. Um, so um, and um, So um, visual patterns, character patterns, and, um, you know, this idea of a kind of underside to the American dream Mm -hmm. thematically, like that, you know, um, the sort of rah-rah America sort of celebratory tone of a lot of Hollywood films, you know, in the classic period um, are sort of given a rejoinder in film noir, you know, which focuses instead on people who, you know, um, can't pull themselves up by their bootstraps and make it, you know, people who um, are seduced by criminality because they don't kind of have a shot in conventional American culture for whatever reason. Um, people who are uh, drawn because of desire um, and, um, you know, of, of various sorts for a different life to um, to the underside. And so, you know, the focus on criminality, I think, is, is a sort of, um, response again to, uh, kind of ameliorative Hollywood filmmaking, you know, with happy endings and kind of narrative arcs that show characters, um, you know, um, facing adversity and then, um, you know, thriving. So the, the world of film noir is not about thriving. It's about a kind of failed idealism. You know, so I always say that, you know, the cynicism in film noir is so interesting because, you know, what is cynicism if not the flip side of idealism where characters, you know, used to believe in, you know, have faith in their opportunities or, um, the world and then the disappointment um, of dealing with the reality of their lives makes right. them cynical. Mm-hmm. So um, you know the the tone of irony, fatalism. You know this idea of um, kind of being drawn into making a mistake, and then having trying to repress or suppress or escape that mistake, and having it come back with a vengeance. Mm. Um, so the the idea of again fatalism that is often Kind of symbolized in the use of the voiceover in film noir, mm-hmm. where, you know, like you kind of know in watching Double Indemnity, you know what the end is because you're beginning at the end. Right. You know, right. so. Um, so and then finally, um, just the, the kind of critique of social institutions. So um, law enforcement. You know, crooked cops, and um, you know the failure of social institutions like law enforcement and marriage and education and government um, to actually provide nurturing or help for um, characters um, who are sort of, you know, um, sold a false bill of goods, you know, in America. Yeah, it's one of the um, things so I that, noticed
0: in her movies is, like, especially the police. It's at at worst. Crooked and at best just like kind of uninformed, like if in you know in the beginning of of you know uh, I think it was it was not one of the very beginning cops. Just, you know she goes after this child like you know kind of losing it, kind of thinking it's hers, and he's just kind of like, "What's going on here?" And that's like the best you get from the cops is, "What's going on here?" And let let's work this out, and you know, and then you tell the story from from that point. But like yeah, there is a lot in her movies about and it's and it's especially hits. Hard because she has female lead characters. Um, and not just like, you know, these characters that you remember or the femme fatale and someone's dangerous, but like the actual lead is a woman. Um, and especially at that time, and it's still true now, but especially then, like kind of suffer at the whims of these cult- cultural institutions because of sexism and misogyny. So there is this constant feel of pressure and helplessness. And even if, you, even if you do do all the right things, things might not end up great so if you make any mistake it's even more punishable and i think you really you feel that oppression in her films like very like almost like a physical restraint as you're watching these movies that there's like there's no right choice there's maybe choices that are more wrong but like no matter where this woman goes she's in trouble
1: yeah that's well said i mean i agree i think that you know um, Lupino was interested in the idea of entrapment, you know, and that's part of her noir ses- sensibility. Um, but when you add the gender um, factor, right, it becomes this sort of fairly, I think, radical exploration of, you know, the ways in which women are trapped by gender, trapped by social roles. I mean, you know, think about Not Wanted and the beginning of that film where you you see like Sally, uh, Sally's mother. Who is just like, it's, it's so interesting because it's not really explained, but she's just deeply unhappy. And her goal is to keep Sally from ending up, you know, in the kind of, you know, prison of marriage with a kind of ineffectual husband, you know, um, and, um, and, and so, or, or the kind of repressive, um, uh, pressure of you know, like the the detail of her um her shirt that her her mother you know on her case for you know having the side the um, shoulder of her of her blouse pulled down, right. um and this kind of sense of the repressive quality of domesticity in mm-hmm. in these different ways. Um, and I think it's interesting that later in that film when she's talking to Drew, um, she he asks her like um uh, about, um, her earlier life. And she says, well, I had to leave school to work. And it's just like these details, mm-hmm. you know, um, of a life that, um, is so constrained and limited. And I think the gender aspect is a really important part of that. And you see it throughout those early films as you, as you suggested."
0: Yeah, and I didn't think about it until you mentioned it, that uh, that shot with you know she comes out and she kind of has pushes the shirt down so her shoulders are bare yeah. and for the time pretty you know it's a pretty daring look and then as we're talking about film noir and these kind of character archetypes like that is more of what a femme fatale would do and it's 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 interesting that you know the world her mother the structures are like nope you cannot be that you cannot do that you have to be respectable and yet this woman even when she is respectable is still punished by the world at large
1: yeah yeah like that that scene when she notices um the piano player um whom she has um the uh the fling with um and who's played by um Leo Penn Sean Penn's father oh, which is great cuz you can if if you sort you can you see can the see resemble it. oh yeah yeah yeah. yeah it's <laughs> really really interesting um so but I love when she hears him playing the piano um and, and you know and he's just this, this kind of bounder you know um but the look the 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 way the camera records her watching him I mean you know it's it's a female gaze that is given this kind of noir um tone. Um, with the lighting that I just think is fascinating. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, that I think is, is really, really an interesting aspect of the, of the film. Like it's about her desire and how she's punished um, for her desire. Yeah. Um, Although I, yeah.
0: Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to kind of transition into is one of the things we usually ask on these episodes is kind of talking about, okay, why, why her, why him, why this director? Um, What sets them apart as one of the greats and, you know, not to lead you into this direction, but I think one of the things that I noticed as I was watching these is how almost modern the camera work and the structure of the films were. Like, I think sometimes when, you know, we're in 2020 and we go back to like the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, we're like, okay, we're going to watch old movies now and it's going to be a different type of acting, a different type of directing. But I was kind of, I was taken aback by her directorial style and how, you know, for lack of a better word, how stylish it was. There's a lot of directors back in this period of time who would just kind of set the camera down and be like, okay, it's about these two people. And I think she's doing some really interesting things with transitions through through actual physical structures and the way people are looking at one another that maybe you didn't see, especially based on gender. So maybe you could talk about, like, what you think separates – Uh, Ida Lupino from directors of the time and what it's like to watch her with 2020 eyes.
1: Yeah. um, I think, yeah, there's a a lot to say about that. I mean, um, one thing is, um, you know, her sensibility is so interesting to me because it's mixed. Like she has this kind of uh, sense of irony. And so you see that irony a lot um, up here, visually. Um, and that also links her to, to film noir, I think. Um, but she also has such empathy for her characters. And I think for me, you know, what's so interesting about her tone is that combination of empathy and irony. Um, and so, um, also she's fairly remarkable at shot composition. Um, and, um, so for example, you know, the, the, Outrage, which I just think is, is a brilliant film. I mean, that stalking sequence, you know, um, is is remarkable. Um, but even at the very beginning of Outrage, you know, I think the movie, um, you know, has a shot of the, the rapist who runs a coffee counter, um, you know, throwing this coffee mug down the, um, you know, the, the counter um and it's this weird kind of unexplained detail and again i love her use of visual detail um but it gives you this sense of unsafety mm. you know it's just a kind of mundane you know domestic gesture of a of a coffee mug being kind of thrown down a counter but in the context of a film um a, a radical film about rape in 1950 um i think it it gives you already this sense of um discomfort um or when when that character is washing out the mug or playing with the mug later when the rape victim Ann is sitting there and there's something so creepy about his fingers inside the mug and you know um and and that um then leading to this remarkable um kind of depiction of how in, innocence um is sort of Um, is, is ruined and her, Anne's kind of whistling as she leaves her office in the factory. And then that whistling, you know, um, so this is a great detail too, is appropriated by, um, the rapist who starts whistling at her, right? Right. And so, again, I mean, all of these kinds of details or, or, um, you know, when, um, when the, uh, that character who's supposed to be kind of a, you know, a, a, a good guy, but he's a letch at the country party later um, in the film, that guy, Frank, oh, yeah. you know, he kind of tugs on her pigtails. So again, the pigtails an attempt to kind of recover her innocence in this town with the Reverend Ferguson and this guy, Frank just kind of, you know, um, it's such a, 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 a little gesture of assault, but it, it's meant to evoke this kind of, power gendered power dynamic that is ubiquitous so um so i, I think that back to your specific question of, of what distinguishes her it's her unique tone um her noir tone that includes empathy and ironic um distance um, it's her shot composition the way she uses uh visual details symbolically um, and also sound, like an outrage, you know, with that that kind of horn honking. And, and this is a great example of, like, Lupino's irony. So Anne is being
0: chased
1: by the rapist, and she honks a horn in a truck um, to get attention. But what that sound ends up doing is shrouding the rape and, and and also causing a guy up in his window to shut his window. So instead of getting help, From her, you know, pushing on this horn, it ends up being a a means to help the rapist and ensures her victimization. So, you know, um, she used subjective sound later in Outrage and also in other films. Um, She was just really um, a kind of uh, very much attuned to um, how detail can evoke larger themes um, and a tone of. Um, imprisonment or entrapment um, or futility Mm. right Um, so the futility of individual agency so you know america's prized on radical individualism and the characters in her world are um, are so um, kind of um, they're they're facing the futility of their of their own actions and i think that's also, really interesting in the context of a of a post war, um, American landscape as well. So a detail like in Never Fear, you know, the 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 Happy Homes uh, company that guy, um, you know, goes to uh, to to try to get a job, um, and the Happy Home is is a again a, a kind of ironic reference to you know, this sort of post war, you know, happiness, domesticity, you know, um, that isn't true for the characters in Lupino's film. So, um anyway, um, tone, shot composition, um I I guess these are the, the things that really uh especially noteworthy about uh about lapino stories and and also how she's telling stories about unwed motherhood and rape in 1949 and 1950 which in itself is, is a reason to look at her films i mean you know there's this kind of you know schmaltiness i think like you know my students will watch these films and they'll be like oh my god the acting is so melodramatic over the top and i'm like yeah, but you know, it really is about what you're looking at and understanding the context in which she made these remarkable films. Um, and this is something that Scorsese um, noted. I mean, he wrote a, um, an, an obituary for Ida Lupino in 1995 in the New York Times. And it's such a lovely tribute to her. He calls her movies chamber pieces mm-hmm. and he calls the films essential. And he saw this kind of empathy and this tone that is so unique in the post-war period in, in Lupino's films. So, um, yeah. 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 I,
0: I think it's a perfect transition to kind of talk about, you know, what she was covering in her movies. Cause as, you know, as someone who came to this totally blind, like I knew the name of course, because like, if you know anything, if you're focused on film and you're focused, especially as I am in recent years on female directors, cause there's been this big, not a lack of female directors but a lack of eyes watching them like there is a thing on twitter called 52 films by women is that and the challenge is during a year to watch one movie a week um, from a female director and i remember that i first did it last year and i started it kind of in the middle of the year thinking like well i watch so many movies i'm sure that i've probably already seen 52 films by women and it was like i think october uh, at that point, And I had only seen like 35. And to put it in context, like I watch a lot of movies, like I probably like in a good year average, at least a movie a day. So I watched three to 400 movies a year and like 10% of those were by women. And I was like, Oh my God, how does this, how does this happen? Like I could understand it for the people who watch like 10 movies a year, right? Like maybe you're not going to catch a movie that's directed by a woman but i think the the female perspective is really important in film because it covers things that are different uh even even if they're the same issues it's from a different angle and for more from a more more appropriate angle so i i definitely encourage anyone who watches a lot of film to try and watch more female filmmakers because it's kind of it's enriched my movie watching life in the last couple years a lot so um so you know her name because, like, she was the one, as you mentioned, the madam, uh, in that group of all men. Um yeah. And I was watching this, you know, totally blind, coming in, but then just being shocked. Not only at the quality of the films, because I'd heard from other people, like, oh, you know, Ida Lupino it's a little bit gritty. It's a little bit trashy. It's a little bit dirty. And it is. But, like, these are also just, on their own, really good movies and really enjoyable watches. So that was a nice... Uh, surprise for me but the biggest shock was like oh my god we're talking about like you mentioned her having a fling with someone an unwanted pregnancy you know uh, having sex before marriage and if you look at it in the context of the time this is truly radical stuff like this is not 1990 this is 1950 like this is you know in my circumstance this is before my mother was born like, this, still, like the idea on a big screen, and I'm glad you mentioned the idea of the timing of her career, because now it makes a lot more sense. I was like, how did this even get made? But the fact that, like, the codes were leaving and the paramount decrees and people were actually able to make honest-to-God independent film again, um, you know, gave her that opportunity. But it is still, like, you know, I try to use this word very rarely when talking about art, but this is brave work to do at this time. Like, so I was really impressed by that. So I wanted to give you a chance to kind of talk about, you know, the, the problems that she was accessing and maybe what that would have been like for her during this period of time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, um, that's a really important aspect of her um, career. Um, and um, her role as a trailblazer. Um, so one of the things that she was really good at was negotiating with the censors. Mm-hmm. And so she had this kind of, um, ability, talent to, um, kind of, um, well, um, appease, um, the production code, um, uh, men who were telling her, for example, um, you know, you, you can't make this movie The Hitchhiker because it's about a serial killer um, who actually at the time was on death row, um, the Billy Cook, who mm. is the real life source of um, Emmett Myers. Um, and um, so um, she negotiated um, with uh, the, um, uh, with Breen and his um, people and, um, and uh, uh, the production code administration. Um, and actually went to visit Billy Cook, um, in, uh, on death row <laughs> and, um, which she said was horrifying and very scary. Um, uh, and he, <laughs> um, but, um, also, you know, say not wanted, um, you know, she was told that she couldn't film, um, the labor scene. Right. And mm-hmm. so what she did was she, um, she kind of filmed the, the sequence from Sally's point of view, right? So it's this kind of subjective shot, which is beautiful of, you know, like the lights and the figures of the doctors. Oh, wow. So we don't see her in labor, but we see what she's seeing. It's um, a terrifying so, scene.
0: Like that stuck out to me. Like just yeah. the, the way that shot it almost, you know, sometimes, you know, we talk about probably the most common film that's talked about uh, is Jaws, where it's like, sometimes the restrictions you're given, sometimes can make a better film and it makes me wonder like if she was able to shoot the labor would that take away because that shot is terrifying and talk about oppressive and not being in control of your life like that hammers that home in like 10 seconds it's pretty impressive
1: yeah right um or no i i agree and i think like so when you think about outrage it's interesting that the word rape is never used because it was not allowed to be used right Mm. so her uh, her rape is referred to as a vicious assault. Um, and so the, the use of euphemism there, right. you know, oh, and, um, so, um, and, um, you know, also the, again, I think the way that, um, stalking sequence is filmed is, is so incredibly evocative and horrifying. Um, uh, so it's, it's just brilliantly filmed. She actually later commented that that sequence was very artsy. And I think she was <laughs> self-conscious about it being artsy. Um, but I think it's it's really unbelievably br- brilliant. Um, her movie Never Fear was about um, a young woman who um, contracted polio. And um, that's actually based on Lupino's own experience because she did have polio um, as a teenager. And so that was a very personal story for her um and she filmed a lot of that movie at um the Kabat-Kaiser Institute um which really was a rehabilitation center um for victims of polio and you know now i mean the, the the sock vaccine would come out soon after the the film was made but there was no vaccine at the time when the film was made um which i think underscores again how you know unique the film is and how radical it was for the time and also, you know, again, just sort of melding a kind of semi-documentary story about um, a woman who is um, afflicted by catastrophic illness um, to a, a sort of um, meditation on post-war America, where you do have these sequences you know, with the happy homes. And you've got, you know, this minor character, Phyllis, who works at the happy homes, whom Guy goes on a date with. Um, and she's this kind of, you know, world weary, you know, world worn, um, divorcee, you know, and it's like kind of evoking a, a, a social landscape, um, at the same time as she's calling attention to, you know, um, the, the suffering of these young women, you know, who had all these dreams and desires and Carol was a dancer and they were just on the verge of their big break and. Right. Um, so I, I think it's just um, pretty amazing how how much she did in each of the films. Um, but certainly, her negotiation with censors to get the films made, um, and her, as you were suggesting, the way she kind of found um, alternate ways to represent things that were not um, uh, acceptable representations at the time. Um, so... Yeah, yeah, it's also,
0: you know, you bringing up how much is in her movie. It's just something I wanted to mention. You don't necessarily have to respond to this. One thing I was really impressed with is just like, for lack of a better word, how efficient these films are. Like, I think her longest yes. movie is like an hour and 40 minutes, but there's so much yeah. packed in. Um And the the other thing I kind of noticed, you know, The Hitchhiker stands out to me, um not only because it's a great film and it is legitimately terrifying, Um, without being overly violent and bloody and gory, but like just this constant fear but there's like there's no women in this movie which makes it stand out uh from from her filmography and then i was kind of noticing i went to the kind of extra trouble of watching the other two movies that we're not covering and one of them is the trouble with angels which is insane when you look at everything else she did and you're like that's and of course her career as a director didn't end there she did a lot of work on television um in the years after this but i'm watching this i'm like it's not a bad movie by any stretch. It's an enjoyable, but it's like a, I don't know, it's very light. It's kind of ridiculous, and, you, and it's so brightly colored. And I'm like, after watching all these movies in a row, I'm like, what, the star of the parent trap? What are we doing? How did this happen? And I would, I just would love know. to know, like, what, and, you know, I read a little bits of interviews with her and her kind of talking about, yeah, it's just, it's very different from everything I've ever done. It's bright. It's sunny. And, you know, I just wanted. You know, you kind of talked about earlier her always wanting a challenge. And if anything's a challenge, it's going from the hitchhiker to the trouble with angels. Like, (laughs) like, this may be like, in all the directors I've looked at, like, this might be the biggest jump in style and structure between one movie and the very next movie. Because usually you can see kind of like, oh, and through most of her movies, you can see the pattern. You're like, okay, I see what you're doing. I see what you're stretching. And then this comes out of left field. And I'm like... I'm almost regretting the fact that my co-host is like, oh, we're not going to cover that one. I was like, I want to talk about that. Like, what happened here? Like, this, like, you know, Catholic schoolgirl, almost farce, you know, and but still has those kind of life lessons things going on. It's so interesting to me that she made that
1: yeah. movie. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I... Actually say that there is a way to connect those two films um, and it has to do with gender i mean one sure. is an all male world and the other is an all female oh, world good point. Um, yep. which mm-hmm. I think is is just really interesting so mas- the, the the kind of anatomizing of masculinity in the hitchhiker is mm-hmm. m- incredible. You know, this this idea, even, you know, of these good guys, these nice guys, these buddies, one of whom is forced to shoot the can held by his friend, um, which, you know, is a kind of flashback to the war for him. You know, and interestingly, he says when they're, you know, before they meet Emmett Myers, he says, you know, it's the first time I've been um, away from Maudie and the kids since the war. Which kind of symbolically links their episode with Emmett Myers to the war and its violence, you know. So, um, but so, but the, the, this kind of um, the idea that you know even Gil and Roy, the 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 sort of violence within them threatens to come out, you know, as Roy becomes increasingly unhinged. And, you know, screaming at the end, and he's literally wearing Myers' clothes, which symbolically allies him with Myers. Um, so, so as this kind of film about, you know, um, you know, masculinity run amok, um, uh, um, I think it's interesting. And Trouble with Angels, you know, it is this kind of female world. And, in fact, what the Haley Mills character learns is the value. Of that. You know, I mean that she ends up deciding to become a nun. Who would have thought? You know that this um, pesky child. Um, <laughs> so I think it was actually a kind of yeah. serious um, consideration of what you know is is uh, what the 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 value of this kind of these female bonds, the mm-hmm. bond between the Haley mills character and the Rosalind Russell, Ru- Russell character yeah. in the end. So, so anyway, I think that's really, um, really interesting. And I wanted to say also that, you know, one thing that she did that was also a first in the sound era was to direct herself in a movie. Right. Mm-hmm. So she directed herself in the Binghamist. Right. Um, and, and that's kind of crazy, right? Because she, here, here she was directing Joan Fontaine, um, who was married to Collier Young, who was her, Ida Lupino's ex husband. And so, I in a movie imagine. about, I know, oh, I know, I know <laughs> but it does, it, it totally like encapsulates how incredibly unconventional she was, mm-hmm. you know, and, and this kind of dissection of marriage and how, you know, social institutions, again, can't contain the desires of, of, of um, characters, although I, I think gender is so interesting in that movie too, because you know the the problem for Harry, or one of his problems, is that his wife is too kind of quote unquote masculine. Like she's, right. you know, he says she she was Eve was in one of her executive moods tonight, right? <laughs> for uh. Successful business, and it's threatening him, yeah. right? Yeah, and you know, for me, like also, I think there's a continuity in this theme of paralysis, um, between the bigamist and, um, Lupino's earlier films, like, you know, Harry being absolutely paralyzed, like he doesn't know how to get out of this fix, um, you know, that he's in. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, think about not wanted and Sally just wandering the streets and picking up other people's babies and, you know, this, this idea of being utterly overwhelmed. Right. Um, you know, I, I think is, is a sign of Lupino's interest in depicting, you know, modern angst. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, the sort of difficulty of achieving desire in a culture that, you know, is, is, um, so, closed off for so many people. Right. Um, you know, and so, um, yeah. Um, I, so, and, you know, I think over the years, like some some have felt, had mixed feelings about, you know, say in The Bigamist, the empathy for for Harry, or, you know, some viewers have found that she's, Lupino's too sympathetic. And I I just, I don't really agree with that. I, I love that she is, you um, empathetic that she has sympathy for all of her characters. And yeah. I think that's really interesting. And I, I find the, you know, um, as, as much as the end, you know, is a resolution in the sense that, you know, he's tried for bigamy, um, the, the, the idea that we don't really know what the future holds for right. these characters. Um, and that's also in key, keep, keeping with this, to get back to the, the, the depiction of, um, post-war America. I love Lupino's use of buses like she mm. is so interested in like bus culture like think about not wanted where um you know Sally meets Drew on the bus and right. um outrage and goes off on the bus and um you know this this idea and and of course Harry meets Phyllis who's played by a Lupino in The Bigamist on the on a bus um that is this tour of the it's so absurd like this tour right. of the Hollywood homes which is you know a kind of ironic reference to the American dream, right. Yep. You know w- what, what it would be like to live like the rich and famous, you know, when these two like lost figures just defining finding one another on the bus. Yeah. So it's, anyway, I, yeah.
0: It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in order to kind of wrap up this episode, what I wanted to ask yep. you to do is give your, like give your elevator pitch to someone who's never seen Lupino, like, why should someone go back in time and take a look at these films and maybe end with what you feel like in our show's terms for masterpieces, like the one film that kind of best encapsulates who she was as a filmmaker? Like if you had to tell a person brand new, like, and you wanted to get them into Lupino, what is the one movie you would choose to be like, okay, here's here's the 90 minutes you should spend to see if you're into this?
1: Wow. Um, well, I hope that um, this really fun conversation we've been ha- having is the pitch for um, yes. um, for watching <laughs> Lupino. Um, and um, I, I guess it would be, I, again, you know, something that I mentioned earlier in terms of um, the uniqueness of her tone, um, her unstinting look at, you know, criminality and violence, um, but from an uh, empathetic perspective um, and the fact that she was doing this as the only woman in the post-war period um, uh, and also, you know, her style, you know, the way she used um, visual and oral symbolism um, to convey themes and also like, you know, uh, other great film authors, there's a signature to a Lupino film, like she had a brand, she was interested in characters who were marginalized, you know, who had desire, and whose desires were thwarted. Um, and so it's fascinating to just kind of see the continuity among these films. And even, you know, as we were saying from Strangely, from, um, the bigamist to, um, trouble with an- angels, her fascination with gender, and that gender is, like other social institutions, a source of, um, pain, um, for so many of these characters, the men and the women. Um, so, um, so I think her anatomizing of gender, um, her visual, um, style and use of symbolism, um, her, you know, noir um, kind of unstinting look at, you know, how people are drawn to criminality and why um, her um, uh, delineation of post-war America um, and its underside. Um, And, you know, in terms of, I guess the first film, maybe it it would be hard for me to say Outrage or Hitchhiker, because I think those two films, you know, are, are, I mean, they're all remarkable. Um, but I think you made a great point about the, the sort of efficiency of the hitchhiker, what she accomplishes in such a short time. And, you know, all of those issues we've been talking about are present, um, in the hitchhiker, you know, and also, you know, this idea of, you know, implicating the viewer, like this could happen to you, you know. Um, And all of her films are like that. So they're like drawing the viewer in, like you could have polio. You could pick up a hitchhiker and, you know, be subject to um, violence. You know, Um, your hopes and dreams could be um, stunted or, you know, um, you know, uh, robbed from you um, in one fell swoop. I mean, that's also a kind of noir trope, you know, Joe Gillies and, Sunset Boulevard just happens to pull into Norma Desmond's house, but this idea of fate um, and you know sudden uh sort of um tragedy or trauma. Um and and that that word I think is important, that word trauma. Like, you know, Lupino um understood um trauma. And you know, she always, you know, had such empathy for her actors too, in part because she had been mm. because she was an actor. Um, but I think that she, she really was, um, and you see this throughout her later career in television as well. She really had a strong relationship with her actors. Um, and finally, so she had this like authorship style that we've been talking about, but she was also deeply collaborative. And back to like your interest in, in women filmmakers, I, th- I think it's, it's a mark of, um, you know, uh, uh, women, fil- women's films that they they tend to be more open to collaboration. And I think that, mm. that this is something that is a value that goes beyond just a given film um, that we should be talking more about. Um, yeah. And I think it as her uh, one aspect of her art.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think, I think that holds true even now um, as far as the collab uh, film will always be a collaborative art form, but I think sometimes the, I'm glad you brought up the style of her films, like staying pretty steady because I think sometimes, you know, one of our, one of our kind of in jokes on the show was the, what we really wanted to call the show, which iTunes would never allow was auteurs for assholes. And they would never allow that in the, in the title. Uh, cause you know, a lot of people are coming to podcasts from like, maybe not a scholarly perspective and wanting to learn a little bit. And I think sometimes the term auteur has been sadly saved for a lot of men. Um, and maybe because of that collaborative nature, like it's harder to see the thread going through the films. And sometimes film bros or film guys will see that as a negative. But I think that's that's a big positive that you can you know, you can take all these differing perspectives and gather them into a cohesive, great film. And I think that's what Lupino was able to do, but also maintain that style as as she went through. Um So it's been like.
1: Yeah. Cool. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, like, it seems to me such a shame that the idea of auteurism oh, is, you know, no longer so acceptable just as women are getting into the, the game. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so, um, so, um, I, I, um, I love thinking about, you know, um, female authorship in film, um, and how Lupino was, was so, uh, important. Um, in this legacy, um, we talk a little bit about, um, you know, in the book about, um, Lois Weber, um, from the silent period and how powerful she was. And, um, there's great work on Lois Weber that's, that's been done that, you know, really shows, um, how, you know, these stories about women directors, um, in the history of cinema just keep getting forgotten. And, you know, I, I would hope that, you know, um, Lupino's story and Lois Weber's and the story of other women filmmakers, um, you know, from the history of cinema are, are that these stories kind of can stick at a certain point. Um, but I feel like sometimes, you know, there's, there's lots of ideological reasons why, um, you know, women filmmakers are, are marginalized themselves. And so, um, and also um, reasons having to do with resources and as, you were saying at the beginning of the podcast, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, uh, Lupino had an edge because she was known as an actor. So, you know, right. Greta Gerwig was an actor. So she, it, it, it helps mm-hmm. um, to already have that reputation. Um, so there's just so much to say on this great topic but yeah
0: yeah absolutely like I, I do honestly like I know people say this all the time in podcasts, but I feel like I could spend another hour talking about this with you because it's it's been so wonderful but we do want to leave something not only for the rest of our episodes but for people to get your book which by the way I've ordered off of Amazon oh. I'm a physical book person so it's going to take a while to get to me but if people are interested um, it's called uh, Ida Lupino Director Her Art and Resilience in Times of Transition which I think is a perfect title based on what what we've what we've talked about, which is written uh, by our guest Julie Grossman and co-written by uh, Therese Grisham. Uh and I highly recommend everybody get it. There is a there's an ebook. It's only like fifteen sixteen bucks. It's not like horribly expensive. So you know, I know we're all we're all clutching money tight nowadays, and uh, given what's going on in the world right now, but if this topic has interested you, anything Julie has said has been like really stuck with you. I definitely recommend people go check out that book. So thank you. Thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank
1: you, Dave. Thank you so much. This was really a blast. Awesome. So really appreciate it. Excellent. All
0: right, so that is our first episode uh, on Idle Lupino. Hopefully, that uh, stokes the fires of getting you to go watch the rest of these movies. And actually, like, if you can't afford to buy movies right now, which we get, there's a lot of her movies are actually they've been ripped or on on YouTube, and you could just go check them out for free. Um, so, in terms of what we're going to cover this month. If you really want to hear everything that we have to say, you have to donate to our Patreon um, because we're going to have one of our episodes on Ida Lupino on our Patreon. And that's just patreon.com slash a podcast directed by. So we're going to cover not wanted uh, in the next episode and then never fear. And then over on Patreon, we're going to cover outrage and hard, fast and beautiful. And then we'll come back to the regular feed, which with the hitchhiker and then finish off with the big of it. So lots of Ida Lupino stuff to look forward to. Um, And if you'd like to hear more from our show, feel free to follow us on Twitter. Also follow Julie on Twitter. Her at is Julie Grossman one. And our at is um, at directed by Todd.